This is an ABC podcast. This is the WA Country Hour with Belinda Varischetti on ABC Radio WA. Well, hello there. How are you today? Good to have you along. This hour, we are going to get the outcomes of a Sheep Producers Australia crisis meeting. And obviously, they had a lot to talk about. Uh, Mutton prices crashing to their lowest level in 16 years, with the national indicator falling below 100 cents per kilogram carcass weight this week. We'll get the details on that shortly. And you'll also spend a little bit of time in the United States where cattle producers have big smiles on their faces. So cattle prices are higher than they have been probably ever at this point now. Really nice to see because there's been some tough years. So we like seeing it, but we would prefer seeing even prices more often instead of the uh, yo-yo effect. Yeah, quite a contrast talking about those cattle prices in the US compared to some of the livestock prices here in Australia at the moment. We'll get into that shortly. Six past 12 here on the Country Hour on the ABC right across Western Australia and on the ABC Listen app. 230,000 hectares. That's the amount of land that's been burnt this year across Gogo Station in the Kimberley about 500 kilometres east of Broome. The fires and the high temperatures are a nasty combination, threatening the lives of cattle and their calves when water bores are destroyed by flames. It's a huge cause of stress for station manager Chris Towns, who's got a fire front running along 160 kilometres on his boundary. Saturday and Sunday would have been the worst two days and it was burning there for a while but then then it's got a bit of a go on with the northerly northeasterly wind which has brought it across through Balker and Christmas Creek yeah and there's been a lot of people working the last couple of days the last three or four days trying to hold it back but yeah the winds have been sort of very favorable for a, um, a pretty big bushfire really so it's taken a lot of country out. How much is a lot have you got a figure? Well, I'd say it's definitely over 160,000 hectares. We've been over, or our staff have been over there fighting it the last couple of days, trying to help them out because it's obviously in our interest to sort of pull it up before it got onto us. And that's not the only fire that you've been dealing with in the past week, is it? Yeah, in the last 10 days we've had two or three fires within the vicinity of GoGo again, but or if not on GoGo, but, and um, yeah, there have been more. The one at Yakanara was purposely lit. Uh, nearly burnt houses down in the community itself, uh, but then it burnt from the only patch of grass that we had up left up there. It burnt out a couple of waters up there, which we've had to replace, you know, solar and tank liners and everything like that to get water back to cattle there, which we've had to shift one lot. We had to shift sort of 10, 12 k's away from the water just because um, it got burnt out. What kind of stress were you under there when you have a couple of thousand head of cattle without access to water and it's sort of 40-odd degrees out in the paddock? Oh, it's stressful for the cattle as well as the people, really. But like this time of the year, a lot of cows are calving down, so then you've got a potential loss of calves for next year, so the income. But then you're just moving around because they obviously go back to their areas where they've been watering for so long, so it's, you've got to put them behind another fence line to try and hold them there, otherwise they keep walking back, so... 
yeah, it's stressful on people and um, and the animals. Do you think you had any losses of cattle? Um, I don't think we would have any direct losses to the fire, but it'd be just like when we've had to shift cattle. You know, we would have lost a few calves here and there because they, you know, the cows that do get mustered in or around the waters would have left calves out or. And um, when you walk off, you don't really know that you're missing a couple when you're moving big mobs of cattle there. Have you got a figure for how much of Gogo has been burnt this year? We'd probably have at least a third of the place, if not a bit more, would be sort of burnt at this stage anyway. And obviously hasn't stopped yet. There's still areas up north of us which usually get burnt every year. You're talking about a third of Gogo. How big's Gogo? So Gogo, we're pretty much... Uh, we're 780,000 hectares, so, you know, a third of that's pretty much been burnt out this year. So, And what are your stocking rates like this year compared to a, a quote-unquote normal year? Yeah, well, our stocking rate's definitely up. Number-wise, we're sort of probably, probably 20% up in our keeping 20% of our usual sales at the moment. Um, we're hoping we might probably get rid of some. Towards the end of the year, we might have to take a bit of a loss in the, in the um, prices just to sort of get them off because of the fires have sort of chewed up a fair bit of the grass. So we're going to have to probably sell some for a, a lesser price than we usually would like to, but we can't seem to carry any more at the moment. So. That must be putting your country under a fair bit of strain, is it? Yeah, well, I don't think, like, in some cases we haven't really got a choice where we put the cattle at the moment because where it's been burnt, the cattle have got to get shifted off and go into other areas where where we do hold a lot of cattle. So, you know, we've just got to box cattle up with other cattle and and hope we get some early storms because, you know, the sale of cattle is just not there either. So, you know, just managing, just juggling cattle around until hopefully we get rain in November, in December or January. Chris Towns, who manages GoGo Station in the centre of the Kimberley, um... And that fire that he mentioned early on is still burning across Christmas Creek, Cherubin, and into the bottom corner of Gogo. And there are a fair few fires burning in the state's north at the moment. Six of them are currently at advice level. After the news headlines at half past 12 today, an update for you on the weather conditions with Joey Rawson from the Bureau. He'll tell you all about that trough that's extending down the west coast, bringing some really hot conditions for Western Australia, already hot in some parts. A Port Hedland expecting a top of 41 today, Carratha 37. In fact, through the northeastern parts of the Pilbara today, most places are expecting above 40 degree temperatures. And the same for parts of the Kimberley, Marble Bar 41, Wallal 39, Fitzroy Crossing 40. And further south... Um, pretty much the same hot conditions. Geraldton, 28 today, 37 tomorrow. Perth, 25 degrees today, 34 tomorrow. And that heat extends even further south. Lake Grace expecting 31 degrees tomorrow. Hyden, 33 tomorrow and 36 on Thursday. And even Albany, 26 degrees tomorrow. All the details with Joey at the Bureau just after half past 12 today. This is the Country Hour, 12 past 12. Western Australian regenerative food company Wide Open Agriculture has signed distribution agreements for its lupin-based protein to markets in the United States. The product is called 
Buntine Protein, named after the Buntine region where one of the founding producers, Stuart McAlpine, grows lupins. The company's Matthew Skinner says the opportunity to enter the US market started at a conference. There's a global ingredient conference called IFT in Chicago each year. We had a booth there and the feedback was overwhelmingly positive. There were lines two or three deep of people wanting to taste the product and really understand what this new novel plant-based ingredient was and how it could really impact the market. And as a result of that, we gave out over 150 samples that are currently being used in test kitchens around North America. And we had two distributors who are really well known in the industry come up and ask if they could represent us in the US. What actually is Buntine Protein? What's in it? <laughs> That's a good question. We, I tend to get caught up in, our, in the trade name Buntine Protein. Buntine Protein is a lupin-based protein product. What we're doing with, with lupin is, is giving it a market beyond its traditional uses. So the problem with lupins is they don't taste very good. They're nutritionally wonderful, 40% protein, 40% fibre, and a combination of fats and carbohydrates but they don't taste very good. And with our technology, what we've been able to do is make it much more neutral in terms of taste. So it doesn't taste of anything, which doesn't sound like a good thing, but when you put it into a food, you don't want to mask the taste of the food with an ingredient that you're bringing in. But we also have able to make it perform much better. So it's soluble, so it dissolves in water, but it also has something called gel strength, which means it helps bind products together. And so when we talk about the different use cases, which I'm sure we will in a minute, it has some really exciting properties. It is the sweet lupin that's commonly grown in Western Australia, white lupins. Correct, correct. So yes, what food products will it be included in? A wide variety. The the ones we're really excited about at the moment is is a vegan cheese that we're making with with buntine protein that typical vegan cheeses are a combination of oils and starches so there's not a lot of protein in there and what we've been able to do and i talked about this gel strength this ability to to bind other substances by making a a vegan cheese out of buntine protein with some oils and other products we actually can create a very high protein vegan cheese that performs and behaves like real cheese but it also works in things like plant-based dairy. So think about your oat milks that don't have a high protein content. You can put some bunting protein in and come up with a very high protein, very creamy milk product that performs really well in your coffees and your milkshakes, etc. And then we go right through to baked goods. So we've put it into Anzac cookies and come up with a really sort of chewy, moist high protein Anzac cookie. It works in noodles, in breads as well. So it's got a huge range of of functions and it performs really well in these different environments. And as people look for different and better protein sources and and are looking to develop in products with much cleaner ingredients, I think bunting protein is is a really exciting option for them to consider. Wide Open Agriculture Chief Financial Officer Matt Skinner with Lucinda Joyce. 16 past 12. I'm Bevan Eats from Manjimup and you're listening to The Country Hour. On ABC Radio WA. (laughs) 
Surely we'll take a look at some workshops to get you thinking about the possibility of getting into on-farm forestry. Those workshops taking place in the southwest of the state a little later this year. First, though, could hover flies replace bees as the main pollinators on Australian farms? Now, the question's being asked because Australia has now given up trying to eradicate the varroa mite pest that causes so much damage to bee populations. Hoverflies, well, they do look a little bit like bees, but they don't sting, so they might be easier to work with. Dr. Ralia Robottom has been involved in a $6.4 million national research program led by Hort Innovation that's been going for seven years. So they have uh, large hairy bodies um, in which when they're feeding off the flowers will get pollen stuck to the hairs on their bodies and they'll cross different male-female lines and pollinate the, the flowers. Do they actually shake it off or it's just by accident? No, it's purely by accident. How did you get onto this or how did, how did the world get onto this? Yeah, so we did uh, quite a few years of surveys across um, many carrot crops in the state um, to, and we found the hoverflies there and then we've taken the research from there looking at rearing them in confinement um, and doing some trials in cages to see how well they work. So they're endemic to Tasmania? They certainly are, yeah. You'll find them, they're actually um, around the globe, uh, but you, we do find them here in Tasmania and um, mainland Australia. And they're quite nice bees, really, in terms of their interaction with people? Yeah, they're very friendly. Given their name, hoverflies, they will literally come up and just hover in front of your face. Um, but they don't bite, they don't sting, and they're, they're not a pest to livestock. And they eat nice things? <laughs> they do, they do. They consume nectar and, and pollen off the flowers. Do you think people get them mixed up with bees? They look a little similar? They do. They look very similar. In fact, most people um, have seen pictures and thought instantly that it was a bee just purely because of the stripes they have on their body and the size of them is large for a fly. So they've always been pollinating here in Tasmania and now we're looking at, at sort of getting them to help us officially yeah so yes they are always here in the environment um, and now we're just managing them um, commercially so that we can actually put them on a particular site to do the pollination so how have you been doing the research yeah so we had to determine um, a source of flies uh, and then bring that um, colony into our rearing facilities and look at many different ways of how to rear them um, on what they like to feed um, and various other, like where they like to lay their eggs and things like that. So somewhere uh, around here and at your facilities, you're rearing them? We certainly are. So we've got two industry partners, both Bejo and SBS, that are rearing flies, um, as well as our research colony back down in Margate. Is there much interest in this project? Um, yeah, there's quite a few growers that have reached out, um, showing interest in trialling flies in their system to see how well they work. Yeah, mm. So we've got quite a few different growers that we're working with at the moment. And what about overseas in terms of research? Are researchers interested? Are they doing other types of species? Is there sort of similar programs? Um, yeah, so there are other flies that are being researched, um, both in Australia and, and in the Netherlands. And even, even here we've got another species that we've got in mind that we want to do that's um, more adapted to warmer climates. So this is a bit of a game changer for, for the pollination industry. Yeah, um, it, it's essentially going to provide another managed pollinator that can be used um, in conjunction with bees. Good timing. Yeah, very good timing given that varroa mites here and we've got other concerns around bee colonies. Dr Ralia Robottom speaking to Fiona Breen about their research using hoverflies to pollinate crops. And unlike bees, hoverflies don't go back to a hive, so they're not at risk 
to the Varroa mite. If you want to see what they look like, do a search online, ABC Rural and Hoverflies, and you'll find Fiona's story. 21 past 12. Well, farmers in Western Australia's southwest will soon get the chance to learn how to get into on-farm forestry. The state government has just announced funding for the workshops in the shires of Nanup, Manjimup and Bridgetown Greenbushes. The workshops are going to be coordinated by the Warren Catchments Council and Vice-Chair Mark Batty says on-farm forestry offers all sorts of benefits to the businesses, the land and the community. Oh, look, I think there's a substantial opportunity given the the policy settings that uh, the government has put in place around native forestry. So there's an opportunity, I think, to keep the skill sets that currently exist around native forest timber management in the southwest and transfer and grow those skill sets to farmers who are interested in doing on-farm forestry as part of a diversification of their of their current business plans and models and how they how they currently grow food. They can move into perhaps growing timber as well. Okay, you've you received a grant from the state government. Tell us about the grant and, and the project, I guess. Sure. So we're looking to bring in experts from the southwest and from over east to deliver the Australian Master Tree Grower Program, which is a program that's been running successfully for 27 years, primarily on the east coast. And this funding will allow us to deliver two eight-day workshops for interested farmers in the shires of Nanup, Manjimup and Bridgetown Greenbushes. And those training courses comprise uh, in-house learning, uh, field demonstration trips, on-site visits um, and uh, a raft of written material to build their capacity around what it takes to plan, plant, manage, deliver and market farm forestry products. should they be interested in doing that, this will help give them the skill set and the confidence to actually go down that path of diversification, which from a, a regional employment perspective offers a great opportunity for future businesses to develop around supporting a farm forestry operation, particularly if there's multiple ones across the three shires, uh, keeps an existing skill set uh, within the region, which is important. Um, there'll be some biodiversity benefits around that as well, around salinity management, erosion control, water quality, etc. So we think there's a whole lot of benefits, both in terms of biodiversity, carbon credits, and indeed diversification of farm income that can keep our local communities resilient in those three shires. What does an on-farm forestry setup look like you know what species are we talking about how big can the 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 plantation be i guess does it all come down to the farmer and and the land farmer uh land soil type and condition and aspect uh rainfall um is reasonably generic but in a drying climate we need to factor those sort of relationships in so it's it's quite bespoke to the actual farm itself and then there'll be other issues around what the market is seeking in terms of product species Um, so not necessarily softwoods Um, we'd be certainly encouraging some some hardwood plantation as well in there and then of course it it has to fit in with um, the landowner's 
business plan and, and strategic direction that they want to head in if they're interested in going down the road of on-farm forestry plantation. There could be significant financial benefits for farmers to get into forestry? Well, we certainly think that um, price for, for timber is only going to head in, in one direction. I mean, we know the state government's policy, uh, particularly with a focus on pine, but there are other, other products, other hardwoods in particular out there that um, the market will be looking for. Um, today we heard the Minister speak about um, you know, saw logs, uh, a market for hardwood timber for furniture makers, etc. So there's still going to be a market and a need. How that transitions in a broader economic sense is yet obviously to play out, but we certainly welcome this investment by the government uh, into this particular project today because it enables those farmers who have an interest but not necessarily the skill set around on-farm forestry to take that first step. Vice-Chair of the Warren Catchments Council, Mark Batty with Ellie Honeybone, talking about those workshops being held in the southwest, possibly a little later this year or maybe early next year. The state government contributed $100,000 towards the delivery of those Australian Master Tree Programs, which are designed to give people the skills needed for farm-based commercial forestry. 26 past 12. Shortly an update from the newsroom. Just before that, though, let's take a look overseas where cattle prices in the United States have hit record highs this month and they're forecast to climb even higher during the drought recovery and herd rebuild. The average price for a heavy steer in America is nearly $4 a kilogram more than what Australian cattle producers are getting. The price gap between Australia and the US has never been higher. Wade Garrett runs cattle in the US state of Utah, and as you'd expect, he's smiling. So cattle prices are higher than they have been probably ever at this point now. Really nice to see because there's been some tough years. So we like seeing it, but we would prefer seeing even prices more often instead of the uh, yo-yo effect. But of course, um, with cost of feed going up and fuel and energy, we had to have higher prices or we'd been out of business. So yeah. So tell me a little bit about that. What have, uh, what have been some of the reasons why the prices are so high at the moment? So a lot of it has to do with cattle inventories and people eating more beef, which is a great thing. But we had severe drought across the country, not just in Utah for the last several years. So people have been selling their heifers, plus they were trying to make ends meet. Uh, so they were selling more of the heifer cattle. Our cattle numbers have gotten low for the mother cattle. And we also had an awful winter in this area and in the Intermountain West. A lot of people lost baby calves last winter. So our inventories are low and um, supply and demand. When the inventories are low, prices will go high. As a producer, when you look at these prices, uh, what are you seeing right now? You're paying $3 a pound for some uh, calves that are 500-pound calves, which they were... Uh, dollar fifty to sixty a year ago so almost double in some instances those prices have you know really climbed especially the last six months and so that is putting a lot of money back into the producer's pocket and that has been very helpful to help them stay afloat and to those back home tuning into the country our three dollars a pound is roughly five to six dollars a kilo if you're doing the maths in your head very poorly 
So tell me, what are you looking into the future now with prices like this? What's that going to mean for your operation? So it's a good thing for our operation and other operations. Uh, people tend to keep more heifers now. So for a little longer, the calf inventory will stay low. The cattle cycle is typically about what they call a 10-year cycle. So it'll go high and then it'll dip down and go back up. And we're probably getting up towards the top of that cycle while people start keeping more heifers, more replacement animals. And once they start doing that, in about two years, we'll start getting more calves. But for the next couple of years, prices look very good if the economy stays good and things stay good. And, and that's going to help producers stay in business. Wade Garrett, he is a U.S. cattle producer, and he was speaking to Hugo Ricard-Bell. 29 past 12 here on the Country Hour and Jonathan Hopper in the studio with the news headlines. Good afternoon, Belinda. Police are investigating whether there's a link between a car fire, a submerged vehicle and the erratic behaviour of a man on a boat in and around Cervantes, north of Perth. The car fire occurred on Indian Ocean Drive in the Nambung area. Later, police were told a car had been found submerged in the ocean south of the Cervantes jetty. Police say a boat was also seen drifting out to sea with a man on board acting erratically. The man jumped into the board but into the water but was rescued by a nearby fishing boat and taken to the jetty. Police have secured the area and taken the man into custody. Victorian Premier Daniel Andrews has announced his resignation. Mr Andrews has served as Premier of Victoria since 2014. His resignation will be effective from 5pm tomorrow. And WA's commercial fishers will soon be able to sell more rock lobster direct to consumers. Since the so-called back-of-the-boat program began three years ago, more than 207,000 have been sold direct to consumers. Fishers can currently sell up to 200 lobsters from each trip, but the government has announced that limit will increase to 999 as a result of the sustainable management of lobster populations. Thanks, Belinda. Thank you for the update, Jonathan. Half past 12. You're with Belinda Varischetti on the Country Hour on ABC Local Radio, WA. Just a few moments ago, talking about how the state government has invested some money into some workshops that are going to be held in the southwest of the state, maybe a little later this year, maybe into early next year, and all about teaching you to get into on-farm forestry. If you've been thinking about that, sort of a how-to guide. In response to that, on the text, Peter says, Refarm forestry, great to see some investment in the regions, albeit terribly small, and will be largely confined to blue gums or to softwood like pine. The WA government should never have destroyed the native forestry industry that only ever involved 30% of all native forests and even then was selective harvest, not clear felled. We were stitched says Peter. This from Jack. I've been around long enough to remember the concern when bluegum plantations were established and how rural communities would shrink owing to almost no jobs except tree thinning, leading to school closures, lack of members for sporting clubs and lack of manpower for bushfire brigades. This policy of farm forestry sees that returning. And this from Nathan. Sawlog hardwood will be 30 to 40-year-old crop, utterly minor opportunities. Do you agree? Or have you got other thoughts? Let me know on the text, 0448 922 uh, Shortly getting to the crisis meeting, which was organised by Sheep Producers Australia, and uh, really got a lot to talk about with the prices of sheep at the moment, not only here in Western Australia, 
but right across the country. And then just before the news at one, it's off to Muche for the double header today, considering the holiday yesterday. So sheep and cattle will check the yarding and the prices with Terry Birkin just before one. Right now, off to the Bureau of Meteorology and Joey Rawson is here today. Uh, Joey, hot conditions for, well, pretty much right across the state, but let's start with a look at the Southwest Land Division. Yeah, there is a fair bit of heat coming for sure, Blender. Um, we have quite hot conditions over the north of the state, but we have this trough that's developing offshore from the west coast. And what that trough is going to do, it's going to um, drive northeasterly winds, really hot conditions from the north further south. So uh, for tomorrow, it, it's uh, particularly hot, um, especially around the Midwest area. And when I say hot, we're, we're looking at temperatures around 14 to 16 degrees warmer than normal. So it's not just two or three degrees warmer, it's it, yeah, double figures warmer and blender as that heat comes down. So uh, looking at a couple of temperatures, um, if we look at Geraldton, uh, we're looking at a max tomorrow of 37. Mullawa, we're looking at temperatures peaking out around 38 for tomorrow. Um, Dalwallanew, 36 for tomorrow, then 35 on Thursday. And that heat's even going to get drawn further south to the central wheat belt. So Calabarans, 34 and 35 for Wednesday and Thursday. And even if we look further south to Katanning, temperatures uh, around 28. So um, it's uh, a fairly warm pattern, quite a a summer pattern uh, moving into tomorrow. And then as we track through to Thursday, that trough's going to slowly move inland So the temperatures are going to still remain hot on the eastern side of that trough as it starts tracking east. So it will start cooling off nearer the west coast. But yeah, temperatures again around that 14 to 16 degrees warmer than normal um, through parts of the central wheat belt and Great Southern um, as this uh, trough certainly moves uh, through. So um, certainly hot for the next couple of days. It's not until we get to Friday and Saturday when that trough moves over the eastern parts of the state and the southwest land, land division certainly cools off. Um, we do have a front that's coming through on Saturday. It's a weak front, Belinda, so most of the rainfall with that front will be confined to the lower west and, and southwest, and, and rainfall figures won't be over five millimetres at this stage at most on the southwest. But we do have a bit of good news. Um, we do have a front on Monday that looks more significant which uh, hopefully can drive uh, rain throughout the whole Southwest Land Division uh, when that goes through. But there is a lot of uncertainty. We are many days out with that front, Belinda. So just looking at the heat then, Joey, I mean, are you expecting some records to be broken with those temperatures over the next few days? Yeah, there's certainly a chance of a raft of records being broken. Um, We'll zone into Perth. The record for Perth is 34.2 degrees. We're going for a max around 34 degrees. So that is just an indication that um, a whole range of places may exceed uh, the record. So uh, certainly interesting for this time of year, Belinda. Yeah, it sure is. And now let's have a look into northern and eastern parts of the state. I'm assuming very hot conditions this week too. 
Yeah, so certainly very hot. We do have the chance of a thunderstorm on the Broome coast uh, for tomorrow. Um, not a lot of rain expected out of that, so it's, you know, it's the first hints of those thunderstorm-type uh, summer conditions starting to occur. Uh, but then as we track uh, through the next four days, uh, just hot conditions and quite stable conditions, Belinda. And have you got some temperatures just to pinpoint a few spots on the map? Yeah, so uh, Marble Bar, we're looking at temperatures around 41 degrees tomorrow. Uh, Port Hedland, 39.5 for tomorrow, but 41 uh, for today. So very hot in Port Hedland today. Uh, looking at around 34 degrees for a broom for tomorrow. So, yeah, certainly those inland parts of um, of the Pilbara, like the northeastern parts of it and the southwestern parts of the Kimberley are getting temperatures exceeding 40 degrees for tomorrow. And then this afternoon, warnings. Have you got a list today? Not a very big list considering we've just got um, – a strong wind warning for the Gascoigne coast, and, and that's it. Oh, well, that might change over the next couple of days with those hot conditions. Now, also, while we've got you there, Joey, the Bureau has just launched a new Tropical Cyclone seven-day forecast service. What does that involve? Yeah, so in the past, basically yesterday, we would have a tropical cyclone forecast that would extend out three days, and that forecast would be text-based. And now we have just um, started a seven-day forecast, which is a graphical forecast. It's not three, but seven days. And it's going to show you where there is a significant tropical low and what the probability, what the chance of that tropical low is at developing into a tropical cyclone. So, um, yeah, it's a significant improvement. Um, Three days text to seven days graphical and and uh, yeah, you can keep an eye on any risk that may um, may be forming out in those uh, northern waters of WA. Oh, good to hear. Joey, thank you for going through those details. Appreciate it. No worries. Joey Rawson going through the weather. Uh, yeah, very hot conditions on the way. Um, maybe even some records breaking. Now, let's take a look at the rainfall. There's been a little bit, nothing much to write home about. But anyway, let's check the rainfall figures over five millimetres in the last 24 hours to nine o'clock this morning. In northern and eastern forecast districts, the Goldfields, Leonora, Aero had seven, and in the Eucala Forest had six. And then in the southwest land division forecast districts, southern coastal region, Beaumont West had 17, and Mount Howick had seven. 21 to one here on the Country Hour. Well, mutton markets have crashed to their lowest levels in 16 years, with the national indicator falling below 100 cents per kilogram carcass weight. And we heard all those details yesterday with Stephen Bignall, the market analyst with Meat and Livestock Australia. And these details and these prices come at a time when members of Sheep Producers Australia held a crisis meeting. That meeting held on Friday to discuss what could possibly be done to try and alleviate the situation. Sheep Producers Chief Executive Bonnie Skinner says farmers need support. I think the biggest uh, request and call for action was around, you know, first and foremost to understand what support producers need and to how, how to connect producers with that level of support. So there was certainly a lot of discussion around what resources are available on the ground to help producers or support their decision making. 
at this period in time. So there was significant discussion around that. There was certainly um, a lot of discussion around what opportunities might exist to support some congestion busting type activities. There was a lot of discussion around, uh, you know, labour and processing capacity in our plants and, and where that situation is up to and what could be done um, to alleviate that, which we know has been a, a problem for the last well, 18 months or more. So um, a lot of discussion there, um, a lot of calls for advocacy, certainly to federal government to um, help them understand what's happening in the, in the sheep industry at the moment. So um, a lot of recognition that um, there's not a lot of levers that could be pulled in the, in the immediate sense to relieve the situation, but certainly a lot of discussion about what needs to be done to support producers. Are people somewhat in a state of shock that things have got uh, that things have become so bad so quickly i think there's a real mix of um mix of views out there in the moment there are certainly a number of producers that i'm in discussion with and and points of view that were relayed in the meeting as well around um how quickly this seems to have been occurring particularly with some um some classes of livestock but uh, a lot of other producers are also being quite pragmatic about the fact that markets, you know, they go up and they go down and it's about managing in and through and out the other side. So um, I think where there have been a number of factors that are increasingly out of people's control um, when they're trying to manage their business and manage their everyday risk on their properties, you know, the prospect of dry conditions has really um, sent a lot of people into feeling very overwhelmed and needing to start thinking about making decisions much more quickly, which is, you know, obviously prompting people to look at how they can get some numbers off their property. And if we look at the, the mutton price particularly, you can't really overstate how bad it is, can you? Because as we speak, the mutton indicator it's fallen below 100 cents a kilogram carcass weight for the first time in 16 years. Uh, that equates to an average price of $29 a head for sheep being sold at the sale yards. That's, that's pretty grim. Yeah, certainly everyone's had an eye on the on the mutton prices for the last little while, watching, watching how they've been in decline. Um, and certainly, you know, ultimately soften demand, you know, particularly from the processes around mutton, whether that's in our export markets, but we, we're obviously aware of the bottleneck that exists as well and the processing capacity as well. It is an unusual mix of circumstances in terms of, you know, comparing it to a previous drought and where we've seen prices sit prior to that. Um, and unfortunately, no one's got the crystal ball to understand when this might alleviate. And as I said before, dry conditions mean that, you know, producers are, again, that they're proactively trying to make decisions about which stock to turn off. And so we're going to see more more mutton coming onto the market, which, you know, is likely to mean that prices are, are not going to get any better in the short term. So um, it certainly is a concerning situation and it's it's the topic of a lot of discussion around industry at the moment. I'm sure the, lo- the, the looming live export ban came up on Friday. What's, what's the sentiment around that and how it could be contributing to, to negativity in the industry that could be fueling lower prices? Yeah, I think that's a really good point. And it's certainly, you know, WA is is um, is a unique case for what it's experiencing in terms of the prospects of, of LiveX being phased out. We've been watching confidence levels there um, throughout the year as these discussions have been taking place and, and following the government's announcement. Um, certainly confidence there has been very, very low. We've seen a drop in, in confidence across the board in Australia as well. I think it's 
you know, for government, a, bit, a big part of our, our topic of our discussions with them is is around the impact that policy making, the decisions that 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 creates in terms of people's confidence to continue to invest in their farms and on their businesses. People need people need certainty, and at the moment, uh, certainly, that it just seems to be one hit after the other, particularly for producers in the West. Um, it's part of the reason why um, there, there's been such discussion around the Qatar Airlines decision. It seems to be another decision that's been made by government that isn't taking into, into account that producers and the lamb industry, the sheep meat industry, need as many market opportunities as possible, um, particularly to take advantage of some of the, the fantastic trade outcomes that we've had in the more recent times. So certainly these things are impacting on confidence and that's why it's so important that people are talking to each other and, and reaching out to get the support that they need uh, so that they are looking after themselves. Bonnie Skinner, she's the Chief Executive of Sheep Producers Australia and she was speaking to Angus Verley. Quarter to one. Wool traders and representatives from Australia, New Zealand, South Africa and South America were in China over the weekend for the first Nanjing wool market conference since the start of the COVID pandemic. Josh Lamb is the trading manager for Endeavour Wool Exports. He was at the conference and says it was invaluable. One, to get back in front of customers, of course, which is always important when you're selling a product like we do. You want to be in front of customers and building those relationships. But also, you know, we have exporters there from from other countries, South Africa, New Zealand, South America, and it's great just to get around the table and, you know, share ideas and market information and see what's happening in the world. Were there any indications of, of on trends or if the wool market may strengthen any time soon? You know, what we've seen over the last sort of four or five months in the wool market is it's just a direct reflection of what's going on there as far as our customers go or customers of Australian wool, and that is that they've, they're lacking confidence. And we've seen that translate through to the market. You know, we've had a pretty soft market since May now, and it certainly doesn't look like improving quickly but the, the biggest issue is just that lack of confidence there and that, that that's coming from the the economic picture in china for customers of wool's quite unclear they sort of can't see where they're coming out of it in the short to medium term and of course that flows through to the market i mean further out into 2024 late 2024 and into 2025 you know they're, they're very optimistic but just that short-term picture's not clear and and of course that 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 tends to make them a bit more conservative what they're purchasing and, and we've seen that directly translate through to the wool market. You know, there's more than half the wool that we send to China from Australia is consumed within the country. So when the retail side or the spending side of, of the economy there is not where we'd like it to be, then, you know, it's going to directly affect the price here. Where there is demand for our wool, what is it mainly in at the moment? Uh, from the Merino point of view, it's, it's mainly in that sort of 19 to 22 micron range that part of the market's sort of probably performed fairly well over the last four or five months. But when you get into the finer microns, you know, the 15.5, 16.5, through to 18.5, that part of the market's quite weak. And that's the sort of end of the market in China that goes into domestic retail there. And that, that's clearly sluggish at the moment. And, and then that's reflected in the prices. But yeah, medium microns have been good. A bit of a highlight over the last few months has been the, the crossbred end of the market's started to improve a little bit. I mean, it's a long way off where we'd like it to be, but it's been a bit of a bright spot over the last probably six or seven weeks. Trading Manager for Endeavour Wool Exports, Josh Lamb with Selena Green. 12 to 1. The Secretary of the Shearing Contractors Association of Australia says there's some nervousness in the industry about continuity of work. 
That's pretty hard to believe when you consider it wasn't that long ago that there was real concern about there being a shortage of shearers, not a shortage of work for shearers. The association's Jason Letchford says some shearers have already been underemployed this season and it's partly to do with the dry weather in the east. It's a different story to the last uh, two or three years since, you know, we went into lockdown with COVID and we also came out of the drought at the same time. There's less pressure in the market. Um, We've seen a winter where contractors across the country have certainly had the chance to catch up. If anything, in some of the some of the districts where there's a lot more shearers, you know, we've certainly had workers that have been underemployed. There's certainly work going on every week, but they're not necessarily getting, uh, you know, 38 hours a week every week. So that's sort of the background to get to here. Uh, and now, as you said, we, we're just coming into the, the busiest time. It's certainly a much more controlled and organised situation where there is workers available. There's no panic in the market at the moment. Uh, and if anything, you know, the grapevine's looking at the concept that shearing prices have peaked for a while. The rumours are going around that our shear is going to start discounting their price to, to get work if work becomes less available than it was in the last two or three years. So that's a pretty dramatic turnaround from if we were having this conversation 12 months ago. Absolutely. You know, and we, we haven't gone from one extreme to the other, but we've certainly gone from probably, you know, the, the worst extreme that we've seen it in a generation or two. We're all thankful, you know, that that's behind us and we're, we're certainly back at more normal times. And if anything, everyone's a little bit more nervous that, you know, with drier conditions, with, you know, the, the Bureau of Meteorology forecasting, uh, you know, El Nino conditions, that's certainly putting a nervousness into the market. And then we've also seen the, the, the issue with, uh, you know, meat prices or lamb prices that they're falling and a lot of the feedlots are uh, not stocking up with, um, with lambs this year. So nervousness in that uh, shearers or contractors feel like there, there mightn't be enough work to keep them fully employed? Yes, that, that's exactly what I'm referring to. You know, one of our big enemies for keeping people in this industry is, is continuity of work. And we've worked, you know, tirelessly with, with growers to try and have some sort of uh, better communication system so people in district know when everyone's shearing and if growers can be flexible and fit in with, with um, the workforce availability, then it certainly, uh, you know, keeps that continuity of income coming in and, and keeps people in the industry. So that that's that's really one of our highest priorities at the moment. Jason Letchford, he's Secretary of the Shearing Contractors Association of Australia, and he was talking to Angus Verley, nine to one. Well, it sounds like shearing staff are a little easier to find here in Western Australia too. Darren Spencer is President of the WA Shearing Industry Association and estimates since 2021 there's been a 10 to 15% increase in young people getting into the industry. Oh, we've got so many young people keen to come into the industry and shearers are easier to find this year than, than what they have been in the last couple of years, whether that is new entrants coming into the industry or New Zealanders coming back into Australia to, to work in the industry. When you said there's more young people coming into shearing, can you tell me a little bit more about that? Through the industry and through AWI, there's been a lot of workshops being held around the state with with a fair bit at Rylington Park. And then they held a workshop back in June at Muresk and just 
workshops around the place. We held one here in Lake Grace and we had six improver shearers and um, six shed hands. And so, you know, with all these ongoing workshops and stuff and with Rylington Park starting up again in the next couple of weeks, a lot of younger ones are getting out there and, and getting into the industry. It's um, it's good to see, you know. We've spent a lot of time and effort trying to encourage people in and, and now I think the young ones are encouraging other young people to come in the industry and they can see they can earn a good dollar in the industry and, and work in a team of people. And, yeah, it's very encouraging for us. When we say young people, how young are we talking? Well, so I was at the I went to the Corrigan show a couple of weeks ago and I was at the Perth Royal show on Saturday and we're seeing um, quite a few novice shed hands and some of those girls are 14, 15, 16 are in there competing in the novice and, and they're learning skills that, you know, in their school holidays and stuff, they're going out and earning their own money and going in, out into shearing teams and working in the shearing team. So that helps contractors out because, you know, through those periods of peak times when school holidays are on, you can rely on those those young ones to come out and work for you. If you could maybe put a figure on how much this increase has been with young people, would you be able to ballpark a number? Yeah, you probably could ballpark probably 10%, 10 to 15% more of them coming in. From what, two years ago, one year ago? Oh, from two years ago, yeah, definitely. Definitely that sort of number. You know, we can see it in our own teams, the young people that are coming in and we've got young young fellas ringing us up wanting learner stands and stuff and it's a matter of being able to get them to a stage where they can shear enough and, and you can put them on a stand and get them going and then get them into an improver school, which, you know, if we can get them to 80, 90 a day, 100 a day and then get someone to come in and um, spend some time with two or three days as an improver school... Those young kids, young blokes go, or young girls too, can go right ahead and um, pick their pick their job up, and they're shown shown good technique, and uh, it's much easier than what it used to be. Where you know when we didn't have trainers come out and spend time with people. Do you think we might be in a situation where WA has too many shearers? Not really, because people come and go all the time. And, and, you know, some of these young people that are coming in, and especially these young ones that are still at school, they're only going to work sort of in school holidays or possibly in a gap year and stuff like that. And that's the way it's always traditionally been. We, you know, a lot of us grew up on farms and we went off and shore during the peak periods and went back to farms and some of us then stayed in the industry. And it's probably more going back to that sort of thing where, you know, we've got people that will come in in peak periods and help everyone out. I know there's some spots that, you know, people are still struggling a bit, but I think in general, right across the board, there's, you know, a fair bit more encouragement where there are people around. Looking back, say, two years ago, did you expect that the shearing industry would look the way it does this year? Oh, we probably knew it would. You know, we had we had some pretty ordinary circumstances back then. There was there was not a lot of training had been done of young people. I think the um, focus, uh, you know, a few years ago was to spend more time in shed training the guys that are actually shearing to try and get them up to more speed, and they would cover the need for it. And then you know, it was a culmination of things with COVID hit and the New Zealand there's couldn't come back and other European shearers that had been coming to Australia like from the UK and all over had been coming in here on visas and working you know they couldn't come so 
you know, that left a massive hole. So we went back to basics and decided, you know, that we had to train our young ones. We couldn't just rely on those ones in the industry. So there's been a really concerted effort with funding in WA through AWI and uh, funding through DPIRD with the Aboriginal shearing schools and stuff. And, uh, you know, we've done a lot of media too. The media's helped us in a good way in that it has been portraying our industry in a good light to show people that, you know, you can get out there and get a job and you can work with other young people as well. So I think the culmination of things has really turned it all around. Darren Spencer, he's president of the WA Shearing Industry Association and Lake Grace-based shearing contractor. He was speaking to Sophie Johnson. Three minutes to one here on the Country Hour. Very shortly, it's off to Mushay to get all the results. The double header, looking at the yarding and the prices for the sheep and the cattle market. Hello, I'm Stephanie Smale. Join me for the world today. Can millions of dollars in US aid persuade Pacific leaders to turn away from China? Why finding a holiday rental in one of Australia's top tourist towns is about to become harder? and allegations of poor umpiring. Dog Aussie rules football's Night of Nights. Those stories and more coming up. Now to the markets. And due to the public holiday yesterday, Mushe hosted a sheep and a cattle sale today. 5,700 sheep and lambs sold and 874 head of cattle sold. Terry Birkin has all the details on both markets. Hello, Terry. Hi, Belinda. We'll start with the sheep sale, uh, with numbers similar to last week, with only the odd tail in pen of old season lambs, and the majority of red tags are now selling as hoggets. The sale mainly consisted of very light to medium weight new season lambs, with only the odd pen at trade weights and large drafts of mutton. There were several new faces in the buyer gallery chasing sheep to return to paddocks, however the market overall slipped a further 3 to $4 a head. New season store lambs sold to $48, while leaf rate lambs were selling from $50 to $69, and trade lambs reached a top of $116 a head. Merino weather sold to $56, while the breast merino ewe hoggets with a fleece returned $68, and crossbred hoggets made $65 a head. Only ewes started at $8, up to $22, while medium to heavy ewes sold to $50 regardless of weight, and mature rams ranged from $5 to $46 a head. Now to the cattle sale, approximately half of the sale was made up of lightweight pastoral heifers and bulls in store condition, and the occasional pen of local steers and heifers showing weight and finish. Local and pastoral young cattle remained equal to recent weeks, however the cow market across the board eased 20 to 25 cents, with slaughter bulls remaining firm. Local veal and yearling steers sold to a top of 310 cents, while heifers reached a top of 248 cents a kilo. There were large drafts of pastoral heifers ranging from 50 cents up to 182 cents with better fat cover. Grown steers sold to 230 cents, while grown heifers were selling up to 170 cents a kilo. Feeder cows were making 50 cents to 160 cents, while medium to heavy cows sold up to 190 cents, and heavy bulls realised 224 cents a kilo. This is Terry Birkin for MLA's National Livestock Reporting Service at Mewshow. Thank you for that, Terry. So just going over the final figures again. For the sheep, 5,699 head were penned for sale. 1,930 of them were lambs. And then for the cattle, 874 head of cattle were sold and 48 of them were calves. 
Good to catch up today on the ABC. It is time for the latest news. One o'clock. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.